my friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, um, this is just off the top of my head, but this is a thing I've been thinking about ever since I learned it while listening to the news this morning. Did you hear that Mark Cuban is creating an online pharmacy for affordable prescription drugs? I think it'll be no surprise to anybody that I barely interact with the news in any way, shape, or form. If it's not a big trending thing on Twitter, I'm probably unaware of it. So no, I had no idea about this. Okay, so the takes on this are obviously a little bit split. So for those of you who don't know, Mark Cuban, billionaire, owns, I think it's the Dallas Mavericks. You know what? I was going to say the Houston Rockets, but I think you're right. He owns he owns a basketball team. He's on Shark Tank. He's He positions himself pretty often as like, I'm a nice billionaire because, yes, I talk about being a capitalist, but also I believe that, like, you shouldn't just burn poor people for fire. Also uh, famously in Sharknado 3. Oh, is that the one you worked on? Yeah. Did you see him? Yeah. Aw. I didn't even know that. <laughs> So um, the whole premise behind this thing is that Mark Cuban's apparently going to do an online pharmacy and he's going to charge um, for all the prescri- – it doesn't take insurance, but for all the prescriptions, it's going. he's going to sell them for cost plus 15%. Mm. So in some ways, that's really awesome because there's like something that they highlighted in this news article is like a leukemia drug. Right. That currently is going for like $9,000 a month in dosages is going to be like $47 a month because that's how much cost plus 15% to produce it actually is. Yeah. And so people with – like you're not going to be going through your insurance. You are paying it 100% out of pocket. But even with insurance, if you've got a deductible – like you're still going to be paying thousands of dollars before you hit that deductible and the insurance kicks in or you can pay $47 a month which honestly is like my gym membership times plus like not even 50%. So my initial take is this sounds far too good to be true but I have been saying this on this podcast I think for over a year It boggles my mind that the top 1% elite in the world don't just use their vast wealth for philanthropic measures just for the goodwill. I think think the exact thing I've said is like Elon Musk could cure world hunger and there would be a statue built to him in every city, in every country on earth, but he fucking won't. This sounds like an intention, at least, Mark Cuban actually trying to do something that is good for humanity. I'm suspicious. I, I fear it because I'm suspicious. But also, you don't even have to go into fucking leukemia. Insulin is one of the most grossly overpriced medicines available, and there's absolutely no reason it should be. So I'm suspicious, but this at first glance, sounds wonderful. Here's the thing. The reason I'm going to tell you that I'm not too suspicious is because cost plus 15% 
is still a prophet. Sure. Like, it's... Here's the thing. It's like, is this a giant swing-for-the-fences investment? No. Mark Cuban is going to put up probably eh, a few million dollars, maybe like double-digit million dollars in the tens of millions of dollars. And on that investment, he's probably, if he gets enough people to actually use this instead of going through their insurance, people who need regular prescription, like I, I'm someone who doesn't, I'm not on any prescription drugs. You know, I'm, I'm in my early thirties. I'm in good health. Um, I am fortunate in that regard. I do know people my same age. Some of them are on antidepressants, sure. which are a regular thing. Some of them, like you mentioned, insulin. I actually know a couple of type one diabetics and insulin is fucking life. Some people just have chronic illnesses. And that's before you even get to people like our parents' ages who pro who have the little like CVS day of the week cases yeah. with just all the prescriptions that they need. If you get enough of those people, especially the ones without insurance to buy that, you'll recoup your investment in time. It's this is not going to be the thing that make that like would make Mark Cuban, like, it's not going to double his wealth. It's just a safe investment that'll probably pay off, you know, moderately well after five or ten years. Sure. And and so, like I said, this probably won't double his investment. But if this were a successful endeavor, Mark Cuban would go down as the man who saved middle America. But here's the thing, and this is part of the critique. It's the, all right. People are going to look at, like, okay, the take that I specifically saw, um, and I want to shout out the Some More News Network, because I heard this listening to their weekly podcast, and this was very much the take that they had. This is great in the fact that it will help people. This is shitty in the fact that you're going to have a whole lot of pundits, specifically very moderate and capitalistic pundits. We're talking Democrats and Republicans who are going to go, see, we had a market solution to a problem. We didn't need universal health care. We didn't need the government negotiating drug prices for Medicare. We just needed a investment-minded person to fill in this gap. Everyone who's going to use insurance can keep using insurance. Everyone who doesn't have insurance or wants to take advantage of these cheaper prices for their very particular prescriptions, they can just go on here to this pharmacy and the market has fixed the problem. And that is so like, okay, thank you for giving me a Band-Aid for my cancer. Like, yes, this will help this many people. I work in housing vouchers. Housing vouchers help this many people, but it doesn't change the fact that I work. I work with a program that houses some six that helps some six thousand households with their housing issues. But I live in Asheville, where the housing crisis is at such peak levels that the cops are breaking up tent cities every other month. You, anyone who points to this and is like, "Oh, look, solution," is either stupid ignorant or evil yes and it doesn't help that this morning on the drive over to your house i was listening to uh, robert evans talk about bill gates and going, <laughs> going into detail about how the bill and melinda gates foundation 
over the years has basically bought their way into secretly controlling policy over the World Health Organization and the UN. Um, so I hear you. <laughs> I hear you, and that makes perfect sense, and I hear some more news. And my initial suspicion had to do with the idea of current big pharma, current health insurance, um, the people who are raking in that 900% profit going, you can pull that out of our cold, dead hands, Mark Cuban, you fuck. Yeah. And not letting it even pass. So this still sounds like a radical enough solution to me that I am at least willing to view it with suspicious optimism. You know what? It's interesting. And, and, and we can wrap up the buffer with this if you'd like. Um, I was getting, I, I had a bit of a Facebook, not argument, but like terse discussion with a friend about the um, Neil Young uh, mm, Spotify thing. Sure, Neil, sure. Neil Young is taking his music off of Spotify uh, in protest of Spotify's support for Joe Rogan. And, you know, I had a friend who basically, and Joni Mitchell apparently is joining him in this. Uh, and they're friends. They've been friends for a long time. And my friend was basically like, oh, yeah, Joni Mitchell. Like, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, people who use Spotify don't fucking care about Joni Mitchell and Neil Young. This is virtue signaling. This is this is an irrelevant thing. If Joni Mitchell really cared, she would have come out in support of Little Nas X when he was getting all this shit from much of the same people who are Joni Mitchell fans um for being queer and gay and and black and all of this stuff and i basically was like okay here's my point i am not going is there more that joni mitchell and neil young could do yes but that whataboutism is fairly masturbatory to a certain degree Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day rich people will not save us I am happy that Joni Mitchell and Neil Young are using their influence to give Spotify some bad PR. Because really, that's what this is going to be. Spotify is, like, this is not going to hit Spotify in their direct, like, money-making. It's going to hit them on the marketing side of things, because this is bad press for them. Just like Joe Rogan has been bad press for them. At the end of the day, rich people will never do enough, because if they did enough, they wouldn't be rich anymore. Every single rich person you know could be doing more with right. their privilege. Yeah. So I'm not going to sit here and shit on Joni Mitchell and Neil Young for not doing enough. I'm going to sit here and – but I'm not going to praise them for doing what they're doing. I'm just going to be like, okay, good. Thank you. And move on with my life. With Mark Cuban, uh, I suppose I could take that attitude. Thank you, Mark Cuban, for doing something that will help some people, even though I know that you're at least partially doing this because it's going to be a safe investment. And for like every $10 million you put in this, you're going to make $5 million more, which is still going to be a drop in the fucking bucket because you're a billionaire. And maybe I just need to be okay. Well, here's my recontextualization of, of that take. We have talked a few times on this podcast about the Overton window. Mm-hmm. And for anybody who needs a refresher, that is the like thought experiment of intermediate steps to the left or the right in the conservative liberal spectrum in policy. And, you know, you have enough people make tiny little steps to the right. All of a sudden we are a far right wing uh, 
country. Yeah. Socially, just as a society, I am okay with anything that can be looked as a step in the right direction. This sounds like a step in the right direction. And I'm cynical enough to realize and know that this is probably something that will take centuries that we debatably don't have to get to a place that is right to get to my Star Trek utopia. But (laughs) this sounds like a step in the right direction. And I can take the win of helping those that one subset of people who currently isn't getting help fucking anyway. So. Uh, It's so adorable when you call yourself cynical. (laughs) Welcome to love-hate relationship, everybody. Format of the show is pretty basic. Uh, After a little bit of a douchebag buffer, which you yourself have just survived, one of us is going to talk about something that we love, the other one's going to talk about something that we hate, and then uh, we take some kind of relationship question. Sometimes it's from y'all, sometimes it's from the internet. This episode here, I've got the love. So Andy, if you will indulge me. Y'all have read the title, so I think this one's gonna be moderately self-explanatory. I know that I've sometimes been very like, okay, let's make sure we explain everything because we don't know where people are coming from. But this one I feel fairly safe on. Sure. So, Andy, I think we can conceivably consider that uh, our audience understands what a public library is. So I want to ask you, instead of giving me, like, your thoughts on this, tell me a brief story about something you discovered in your public library at some point. It was meaningful to you or was amusing or impactful that you would not have experienced had you not been a person with a public library that you frequented. Yeah. I would not have gotten into comic books without my public library. Okay. And anybody who has listened to this show to a great extent and anybody who knows me personally knows what a fucking huge deal that is. Mm -hmm. Ever since I was little, you know, I, I had the kind of childhood where I spent every Saturday at the library just getting stuff and you know graduating out of children's books became oh I'm going to take every volume of Garfield and read that and reading every volume of Garfield turned into reading Calvin and Hobbes and reading Calvin and Hobbes I was just in the section for cartoon comic strip books and that was right next to, in the library I was in, the comic book section. So one day, you know, I just, I think my dad even was the one who just handed me the X-Men Silver Age omnibus. <laughs> God, which that is sucks. full of awful stories, but yeah. as like a, a sediment bedrock layer of X-Men understanding was, you know, something uh, vital for me to pour over. And that just eventually turned into trolling the comic book section and grabbing Runaways and grabbing Chuck Austin's X-Men and just grabbing whatever looked cool pouring over it until I finally realized there's such a thing as a comic shop, started frequenting that, started collecting, 
and then you know later on that turned into trolling Barnes and Noble and using it as a public library. You just couldn't leave with the book. Sure. So I, you know what, I love that, and and you know what, you are not the first person to tell me that you first started reading comics at your local public library. Um, I did similarly myself when I was getting into comics. Um, when I discovered that my library had trade paperbacks, that was a very big deal. Mm-hmm. I think my version of this, honestly, is uh, it, it's it's a, and it's a shorter story, but it is uh, more later on in life because um, I also had a childhood where I frequented the public library. I did not go every Saturday. That impresses me. Um, but I probably went, you know, every month, maybe every other month at the very, you know, least. And it was it was a thing where, you know, my parents, like my dad was very okay with being like, yo, you want to go to, the, you want to go to the library? Like I would ask him, can we go to the library this weekend? And he'd be sure. like, yeah, we can go to the library. And my, and I've talked about this on the show before, like my parents, um, you know, it's not, they weren't neglectful, but they were busy. Like both of them worked full-time jobs. One of them doing night shifts. Um, they were, they were always more concerned with keeping us fed and clothed than needing to do a whole lot of other, like I, I hear stories about family game nights and sure. people who, you know, did, did all this very nice, wonderful stuff with their families. And we would try and do a little bit of that, but it just never had the frequency that some people did because my parents were fucking busy. But my dad, who worked nights, had no compunctions about going, okay, yeah, we'll go to the library on Saturday. Uh, on the way home, we'll pick up dinner, and, you know, that'll be great. That's a great thing. My kids like to read. Awesome. Sure. Fuck yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's um, a great thing. But, like, even in recent years, I, 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 I have said this story. Of, I, I've referenced this book a few times, but... There's a book that I read recently that was, uh, in, I say recently, in the last few years, uh, that I had heard talked about very, very often, um, and it was called This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed by an academic named Charles Cobb. I've referenced it on this podcast several times. It's one of the most impactful books I ever read. It's an entire book about how the civil rights movement, while you know preaching and, and discussing s- sections of nonviolence, also, at the same time, that nonviolent protest was made possible largely through a coordinating campaign of Southern black people who had guns in their culture, who made sure that those, you know, nonviolent um, activists didn't get killed. Mm-hmm. And it's it's about more than that, but it is it was one of the most eye-opening reads in terms of just like my political education. I still do not own that book. That book is like $30 in paperback because it's by an academic press. I checked that book out from a library. And that book is still one of, it's one of the first things whenever anyone tells me they want to get into political reading or learn anything about really anything concerning American politics. It's one of the first books that I always recommend to people. And I have requested it to be like brought into libraries before because Mm. to me it is that important and I read that book when I was broke as hell, working a garbage job that I got when I first moved to Asheville. And I'd been I'd heard about it for years and I just discovered my public library had it. 
And I got it and I read it and it was one of the most instructive experiences of my adult education. Sure. And adult self-education. And I got it because of a public library. And I still go to the public library. Yeah. Case in point, I'm going to talk about it on this fucking episode. <laughs> right. Uh, thank you for that. I do love that um, little baby Andy was such a little library fan. I mean, I just got to divulge here. I, maybe it wasn't every Saturday, but it was, if not, it was every other Saturday. And I can remember my, like, childhood elementary school local public library mm-hmm. having all these, like, incentivized reading contests where it was like you, you got this thing that looked like a, a board game like Candyland layout and for every book you read your piece moved and every five pieces every five books you read there's some you know little Chuck E. Cheese level prize and at the end you get a pizza party from the library and I fucking dumped that shit I'm going to confess something to you. This is completely off the topic, but I had, I I remember having an elementary school, like reading contest thing where it was like, if everyone in your class reads like five books by this time, then, you know, you get a pizza party and they would give us these slips where we would write down the book and then our parents would sign them. (laughs) And my mother, God bless her. Um, I would just hand it to her and be like, hey, you need to sign this that shows that I read these books. And she didn't ask any questions. And I used to just like, it's not that I wasn't reading, but I was often, I'm a slow reader and I was not someone who was going to read, like, I often read longer books, even at a younger age. So I just wasn't reading that many books at that time. So I put down whatever book I was reading, whether or not I finished it. And then I would write like TV show names like names of TV shows that I was watching and like just have my mom sign it. And then we totally got the pizza party, even though I totally didn't read that many books. I'm sorry, mother. This, this is like a, I think 25 year old confession at this point. Alex for shame. Yes. Well, it was their fault for, uh, expecting being busy. No, not my, not my parents fault. It was the school system's fault for trusting something like, a permission slip or something your parents signed. Please. My mother's signature was so easy to forge. That's better. Uh, so to get back to our topic, believe it or not, I do actually have a useful descriptor for a public library. And I want to be, I, I want to be conscientious here because I've loved many a library that was not a public library. I, you know, in, in middle school, our library was my safe place. That sure. was where I went at the beginning of school, like, every single day to hang out with my friends or not hang out with my friends, just be, um, you know, my school library in college was a safe place. Like I just, there are non-public libraries that were important to me as well, but I want to talk about public libraries here. A public library is a publicly funded locale maintaining a collection of books for open use and borrowing to the general public. It is operated by librarians and library paraprofessionals who are themselves civil servants. Libraries also typically offer community meeting spaces, resources, and free access to materials such as computers with internet access, public records, and newspapers. So while libraries of various kinds have existed in organized civilization for most of its existence, there were, you know, scroll libraries in the Roman bathhouses that they Mm -hmm. kept in the dry rooms so that before and after your bath, you could sit and, like, read some scrolls. Like, that was some shit. 
Um, and there are, you know, accounts in both the Western and Eastern world of various libraries. The current model of a completely free, completely open to the public library that I'm specifically referring to here was not invented at this time, but it really came to prominence in the Western world with the Public Libraries Act of 1850, which was an English law that came about, um, and not to get deep into the historical side of it, but it came about in the same movement as this public investment in things like museums. Sure. Um, there was also the Museums Act of, I think, 1854 at this time, which any, anyone who gives a shit about English architecture references that Museum Act very heavily because that's where a lot of the British museums that like we gravitate to and are huge tourist attractions to this day, that was how they got started. It's also where a lot of European um, architects really made their names designing those museums. That's a side tangent that you can read about at your public library. The Public Libraries Act of 1850 was the first widely adopted British law that allowed municipalities to tax their population for the maintaining of public libraries. This is a big deal here because before that, public libraries were largely, it, it, you might have libraries that were open to the public that weren't associated with like a, public, a, a local university or something like that. But the problem was they were always funded by other things. They'd be funded by the local convent. A lot of convents and churches yeah. would maintain libraries uh, and fund the libraries. You might have something funded by an endowment by a rich person, which funny enough, a lot of those public libraries that we fund, it, that, that we fund publicly are established via a donation, but they're maintained via public funds. Sure. That might seem like difference without distinction, but I do have a point about that. Okay. So, but, but to finish the history lesson, through the rest of the 19th century, establishing libraries became a bit of a pet cause for rich philanthropists, including Andrew Carnegie, who had established half of the U.S.'s public libraries by 1930. You want to talk about a rich person who decided that they wanted to just spend their money on doing shit so that they looked good? Like, Carnegie legitimately did want to do some good he didn't want to do so much good that he'd like be happy with his workers unionizing, but he wanted to do some public good. So he funded the establishment of a whole lot of public libraries. Public funding would keep them going, and honestly, until only very recently, they've been considered a universal public good, worthy of their spot on any municipal budget line. Sure. And, and something I want to get into here... I think it's important to contextualize before 1850, hell, before 1930, you could make the argument that the vast majority of the quote-unquote common population couldn't even read. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned uh, convents uh, maintaining libraries. That's because, like, if you could read, it meant you were probably a priest and you needed to be able to read, you know, whatever your religious articles were sure um and so i i think it it bears note both of these points in the timeline you could argue are when great literacy movements followed for the non-aristocracy and the non-wealthy class of the world i mean yeah i'm have i ever talked about uh, a tree grows in brooklyn 
on this podcast? That rings a bell. So A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is um, a novel that was published in the early 40s. Great novel. Um, I, I read it. I read it in graduate school. Um, though it is very much, um, you know, it, it's it's. I read it in a children's lit class. It's really accessible to anyone who reads at like an upper elementary school level. Um, though not all of the content pertains in that regard. Um, there's a beautiful scene in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn that I think about all the time, where um, main character's mother is an immigrant, um, and she never learned how to read. Mm-hmm. And it is a plot point that because she doesn't know how to read. She has suffered significantly. There's a point where she spends her life savings to buy an apartment building. The idea being this apartment building is going to be the thing that gets her family out of poverty. And it turns out she's totally scammed. One day she goes by the apartment building and the people who, uh, there are people working on it. And she's like, what are you doing to my building? And they're like, this isn't your building. And she shows them the deed that she bought. And it was a complete, like, bullshit thing. And sure. she didn't she didn't know because she didn't read. Right. And there's a scene where her daughter, who is uh, like 17 years old or 18 years old, has a baby. Um, You know, she got pregnant as a teenager and she and the baby's father both broke and haven't finished high school. And they're so they're 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 so depressed. and And she's sitting there with postpartum depression and her grandmother is cooing over this baby and is so happy and is like, you you will have such a bright future. And she's and her daughter says, like, what the? What do you mean she's going to have a bright future? And her mother looks at her and, I, and says, in our entire family's history, this is the first child, both of whom's parents know how to read. This child will read. There was a hope when you were born that you would read. We know this baby will read. This is the greatest moment our family has ever had. And, and it's like that perspective shift, that idea of literacy that we take for granted here that you just talked about. And yeah, post-1930, post-1850, libraries becoming this giant thing spreading around, you do kind of have that ability. Yeah, You can go to your library and put your kid in a class where someone will teach him how to read in a lot of places. Hell, or, for adults. I was about to say, you know, you can go to a class and learn how to read yourself if you are somebody who doesn't in this time period. Indeed. So I, I appreciate you pulling up that point. I mean, so libraries, uh, like the biggest re- biggest reasons why I love them. Libraries are one of the few absolute goods that I have ever encountered in my life. Mm-hmm. Like there isn't a bad library. Like as a child, they were my, they were a safe space for me. There were a spot where I fell in love with so many books and so many writers also a pretty decent amount of music and movies like i don't know if you had a library where you could check out movies yeah oh yeah absolutely i remember a whole shelf of vhs's and you know we rented movies when i was a kid but we also checked them out from the library i got cds and tapes you know my my parents were never rolling in it and you know weren't huge on a lot of participatory participatory activities but i got taken to a library and I was encouraged to check out books. I remember checking out goddamn Free Willy, which we watched with like Little Caesars. And it's one of the few times that I can remember having a movie and pizza night with my family. Watching fucking Free Willy as that we checked out from the library on VHS. Hey man, that's a beautiful memory and I'm not going to let you disparage it. Oh, I appreciate that. Um... But that's the thing. It's like, think about anything a library does. 
is there anything bad about it? Like, part of that push in the 19, uh, up, leading up to the 1930s was like, this is this is a little anecdote. It's not in the notes, but I, I learned in doing this research. A lot of it came out of the temperance movement. Sure, like pro- prohibition era activists were like, if we invest in libraries and people have libraries to go to, then they won't want to go to the bars. Right, and it's and it's a good it's a good alternative. We can recommend going to the library instead of the bars, which sounds like such a your grandma move. Get your mind drunk. <laughs> On knowledge. I, I, I'm, I'm just more like, why would you go to a bar when you can go to a library? It's very sure. Flanders. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's very unsexy. Yeah. Which, but like, here's the thing. I would happily do a library date. Like, well, and God, I mean, I guarantee you there are no fewer than three libraries in the greater New York area that doesn't do some sort of books and brews Friday night and just like bring in a bunch of beer and have people drink at the library. And that sounds dope. That actually does sound <laughs> yeah. really fucking dope. <laughs> I mean, I'll take it a step further, you know. And I, I think it isn't unfair to say that since the true birth of the internet as we know it today, library attendance has gone down. Um, I, I feel like that's an issue that's been talked about. And look where that's gotten us as a society. <laughs> Things weren't great before, but if you go to your local library, you can read about a bunch of Nazi hate crime shit and learn not to do it. Well, okay, so that was that was gonna be one of the things I talked about at the end of this. I can go ahead and talk about it now. Um, a public agenda survey from from two thousand and six showed that 84% of the public viewed maintaining free public library services as essential. Yeah. But roughly the same percentage were unaware of the were unaware of the financial difficulties that public libraries currently face. In 2009, 40% of US libraries reported facing major cuts totaling in the hundreds of millions of dollars throughout the country. Especially as people assumed that the libraries were unnecessary in the wake of internet access. And I have heard this argument before. I've heard people who have sat there and been like, why the fuck are we still funding the library? Who goes to the library anymore? And the people who say that, the people who communicate that are people who can afford to go to the bookstore. Or more than that, if they read books, they're just buying them and ordering them online. Yeah. Which, don't get me wrong, there's a validity to that, especially in a pandemic world. I get that. And I do like going to bookstores and buying books. Shut up and take my money. But it's so privileged. And it so ignores everything else a library does. Yeah, you know, this is something I wanted to bring up and have kind of danced around, you know, the advent of the Internet Age and the, at least in the admittedly solid middle upper middle class suburbs that we grew up in Mm -hmm. the corporatization of bookstores you know there there was a library as close to the both of us as the barnes and noble in the town center Mm -hmm. that i know i frequented more Mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure you frequented more at least as like a high schooler yeah and it just became this thing of like yeah okay I can go to my library or I can go to Barnes & Noble, read the same book that I'm going to find at the library. I just can't take it home with me. 
and then go across the street to fucking Target and walk around Target. Yeah. Like, okay, so the last time I went to the library pre-pandemic, because um, Stephanie and I would occasionally do these library dates. Sure. We would just go to the library and hang out for an afternoon and check out books. I saw posters there offering free Saturday after school programs, free English as a second language classes, free job seeking services, free tax prep, and free music performances. Yeah. I checked out a book that I, I checked out a few books that I just like had been hoping to re- I checked out Giant Days. I remember this because I read two volumes of Giant Days, which is a great comic that all of you who are interested in comics but don't like superheroes should absolutely read Giant Days. It's one of those, like, school ensemble stories. Highly recommend it. I think I told you about it when, um, the last time I took you to a comic shop. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I passed a glorious afternoon with my wife. I saw a three-year-old with what I assume was his parent being taught how to read at the library with his, like, with, with, with his dad sitting there just being like, okay, this word sounded out, do this. Like, he's teaching his kid how to fucking read at the library. I work with clientele that tell me regularly if I have to email them something. Oh, okay. I'll check that and read it and look at it or print it out when I get to the library. Because that's the thing. It's like... The person who's sitting there saying, who the fuck uses the library anymore, thinks about the library as this place that they went to in high school to, like, get help on a project or check out books for school. They don't look at it as a community space. They don't look at it as a free service that allows folks who can't afford a computer and internet access to do the very essential things that we now have to do on the internet. And by the way, there is a civil servant there who, from the word go, is able to explain to someone, hey, yeah, this is how you access this. This is how you do that. Are you doing some online banking? Are you applying for a job? Are you just looking up something that someone told you? Yes, I am here to help you, free of charge. Yeah. With no expectation. You can't... So if you are... I'm going to take this a step further because I, I think this is a under-examined great good that public libraries do. If you are a houseless person, if you are somebody who, you know, is, is having a really hard time and you're displaced and, and you're, you know, houseless... Mm-hmm. You can go to a public library and presumably file to have a library card, and that become that can become a place where you can access a computer. You can read, you know, the paper or whatever the hell else you want to read. Hell, you can go to the bathroom like a human being. Yeah. You're not going to be able to do that at the Barnes & Noble because immediately some, like, 20-something who works there is going to, like, try to turn you away at the door. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now... Um... The downtown library in Asheville, uh, I don't know if this is a legal thing or just a policy that they have, but um, so much of the homeless population was camping out inside the library that they had to institute a no sleeping on the premises Mm. rule. So I'm pretty sure they did that because there are a whole lot of just, you know, people who are there 
for the library for their own reasons who, you know, are less than sympathetic and they go, I don't want to see all these homeless people here. It's the same sure. reason you have that shitty spike based architecture to make it hard for people to sleep in parks. Yeah. And that's awful. That is absolutely terrible. And it is 18 degrees outside right now. And I really, really hope that, like, even if they can't sleep there, that there are some folks there in that library who are just getting out of the cold. Right. And it is god-fucking-awful that, you know, our, our political systems are such that we can't take care of those people properly. But at least it is a resource offering that particular good. Yeah. And I think that's an important good. And you know, beyond that, like you said, there are so many social programs. I didn't know that you could go to the library and get tax help. That's amazing to me. Um, and even just beyond that, even for the even for the upper class suburbanites who maybe whether they should or not don't necessarily care about the good social programs, it's a place where you can go and your kid can like have this bribery incentivization to then improve their own literacy like kind of going back into what we were talking about in the mark cuban segment i am so much i am so okay with something that maybe isn't being done for the best reasons but achieves an act of good like giving your kid a sucker every time he reads a book yeah or something like that it's just it you 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 really laid it out in the most succinct way i cannot think of anything about a public library that is a societal good. You mean that is that is isn't a societal good? Isn't that what I said? No, you said is. Oh no, that's uh, not, <laughs> not the vibe I'm putting forth. Well, libraries kick ass. Yeah. I like them. <laughs> I I also like them, and I just I yeah, man. I I just there are so many things libraries provide that we just end up paying for out of pocket if we can afford to. And for people who can't afford to, they're fucking essential. But even beyond that, they're just a great place. It's a spot where whatever your economic strata is, you can go and a person will help you find information where you can spend a quiet afternoon learning shit, reading shit. I, I, I didn't even get I didn't even mention this like you can just read the newspaper there the library will have the daily newspaper you can go there you can read the newspaper for free like and if you're you know let's say you want to look up classified ads let's say you just want to keep up with what's going on that is that access to literally anybody who just wants to walk in and get it is so democratizing. And the only people who are going to have a problem with that are the people who say some things like, oh, well, it doesn't turn a profit. It's the same criticism people have of the United States Postal Service. They're like, the Postal Service loses this much money because it's not generating any profit. And it's like, the point of it isn't to generate profit. It's a service, right. not a business. And it is a service that offers universal good to a community. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. We're in a pandemic. Obviously, not everyone can go to a library right now, especially not go safely. And that is awful. Um, I do highly recommend most libraries uh, that are in, you know, decently 
funded areas um, tend to have online services. You can um, download Libby, uh, which is an app that lets you check out audiobooks in the library. Um, what is it called? Um, there's a book version of it where you can download um, ebooks from a library connection. It starts with an O. Um, vamping, vamping, library. While you're app. vamping, I'll mention, um, I know... Overdrive. Okay. There's an app called Overdrive that you can, where you can download ebooks to your phone or your Kindle or your iPad or your computer, and you can just read those for free. There are, hell, there are libraries, like, I, I know I had this when I lived in Orange County. The Orange County library system, you could check out a book from any library in their system. They will mail it to you. And then you can just use the overnight drop-off. You never have to walk inside if you don't feel safe to. Use your library. Yeah. Fund your library. Like, make that a thing because I guarantee you, even if you don't use it that much, even if you don't care that much, it's going to be impactful for your community. And I just wanted to highlight that. And thank you, dear boy. You you told me that this was going to be what we talked about today, and my face lit up. I've... I've I cherish libraries, so this was a good one. Yeah. Now then. Now then, something I don't cherish. <laughs> something I debatably cherished at one point and now don't. Um, so I, I wonder how many people are going to understand what I'm talking about when I say, when they read the title. I want to talk about why I hate Scott Cawthon, mm -hmm. but this, this will kind of spiral into something else. Okay. So I want to ask at the top, Alex, what do you know about the Five Nights at Freddy's video game franchise? Uh, I know very, very little. I think I've seen it like, like clips of it thrown into like Daily Show segments or other things, and they're like, it's as bad as a moment in Friday, Five Nights at Freddy's, and then they cut to something like, I think I saw someone in like a bear mask stab somebody. I might be getting it wrong. Uh, bear mask is definitely involved. Yeah, uh, I know it's a horror video game. Uh, I did once hear a very heartwarming story about um, a uh, solidly, uh, a, a very, very uh, autistic child that was um, getting some help or, or was at um, a mental health center where they were, you know, working with him and he was very nonverbal and, and hard to communicate with. And... Uh, he would draw these pictures and the people and the residents there, the older residents were like, he just keeps drawing these disturbing looking photos and we're really worried about him and it's concerning. And there was a younger like intern uh, who was studying there and he saw this and he's like, oh, those are Five Nights at Freddy's characters. He's just drawing Five Nights at Freddy's characters. I know that game. And he apparently went in and started talking to this kid about Five Nights at Freddy. And this kid who was by and large nonverbal with all of these really experienced speech pathologists just talks to this like 20 something year old dude about Five Nights at Freddy's for an hour. And he just lights up and is really, really like, he's accessing more. Mm. And I remember this story kind of circulating and it was very much presented as a like, this is why you can't just go off of the books. This is why you need to get new people in to these positions because they're going to relate in ways you can't predict kind of deal. So it was a very heartwarming story. It doesn't say anything about Five Nights at Freddy's other than it's a thing that this 20-something-year-old and this, like, 11-year-old autistic kid both like to play. Fair enough, but I, I want to say I had never heard that, and I, I think that's wonderful and heartwarming. 
and I'm, I'm trying to figure out the qualification here. I don't hate the Five Nights at Freddy's games. Sure. You don't hate the artist. You hate... Or, no, I don't hate the or art. Or you don't hate the art. You hate the artist. I have some massive problems with the artist and the artist's fans. So, if you haven't figured it out by now, Scott Cawthon is the creator of the Five Nights at Freddy's games, which I will go into. But a little bit of background... Scott Cawthon was an independent video game designer who began working in 1994. In 2000, Scott joined a production studio called Hope Animation, which primarily created a bunch of Christian cartoons for kids. Okay. So not, not VeggieTales, but something along those lines. Okay. In 2007, Cawthon released a video game retelling of the famous Christian allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> and began creating short, relatively simple games at a fairly standard clip. Again, not with not working with any studio, completely mm -hmm. independent, and there is a technological skill behind that. This eventually led him to, in 2014, creating Five Nights at Freddy's, which is potentially the most famous and popular indie horror game ever created. Okay. And I think it, it cannot be understated for anybody under... 30, 35, I'll say. Like, this is, this has become a cultural touchstone in at least Western society. Certainly internet society. Hello, everybody. My name is Markiplier, and welcome to Five Nights at Freddy's. The premise of Five Nights at Freddy's is simple. You play a security guard in what is essentially a haunted Chuck E. Cheese-esque establishment mm -hmm. and must track the movements of several animatronic creatures. That is, so Freddy is Freddy Fazbear, and he is a bear knockoff of Chuck E. Cheese. Okay. So that is the whole premise. It's basically the, the animatronic Chuck E. Cheese band comes alive at night and will kill you if you don't pay attention to them. That is what the game is. Okay. So like Nightmare Night at the Museum. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, the success of the game is built upon simple controls, uh, tense environment, jump scares, and a really like complex, obsessively created lore. Mm -hmm. um, that make reacting to other people playing the game an enjoyable time. Five Nights has become an incredibly popular let's play topic for many YouTubers. So it, it, it is a whole genre of YouTube at this point to watch somebody else play a horror game and get freaked out and scared and, and you are watching them and you are gaining enjoyment from watching them freak the hell out. And Five Nights is like the, the penultimate version of this mm. so this franchise would become Cawthon's defining creative endeavor and cash cow um, and and he would just crank these games out because again they're relatively simple and, and relatively low budget mm -hmm. uh, Cawthon made 13 games in seven years and then went on to create a couple of novels an entire just goddamn ocean of merchandise and at one point was in talks for a movie how do you do 13 games on the premise of a haunted Chuck? Are they just different haunted Chuck E. Cheeses? Or? Yes. A couple, so, like, in, in number two, it's a different haunted Chuck E. Cheese with the same animatronics. And in number three, you're in the first one. But turns out there was a serial killer who is, like, trapped in 
one of the suits and, and it's his ghost that's going to kill you. And in the fourth one, you're a kid who is having nightmares about going to this establishment and just being scared of like the regular animatronics. And, and so he manages to find like a new deviation on the basic premise of there is scary stuff. If you don't click the mouse in the right way at the right time, something's going to pop up in the screen and go, blah, 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 just and like that. Freak you out. Just like that. <laughs> um, and, and, and so this is an incredibly just popular thing. There, there's a, uh, a YouTuber who goes into like deep video game lore and discovering the hidden stories of video games and has like this 20, video series just about on figuring out what the hell is actually happening in these games because there's little tidbits there's little crumbs of actual story going on that's why the guy had to come out with novels explaining what the fuck is actually happening okay so that is our groundwork okay now on june 21st 2019 it was revealed that Cawthorn had been extensively donating to Republican to Republican officials. There's a, there's a tweet if you look up you know Scott Cawthorn controversy. This will come up showing the dollar amounts. Never less than a thousand dollars to people such as Ben Carson, Dave Nunes, Donald Trump. A five grand donation to Mitch McConnell mm. once discovered. Cawthon announced that he was ready to be canceled and announced he was retiring, mostly because there was an understandable wave of rage, rage, and you know people being upset. A, a large chunk of the Five Nights like fandom are a bunch of you know LGBT, super left leaning young people mm-hmm. who then discover that the architect of this thing they love is doing this in his private life and understandably go, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. So Cawthorn has this thing blow up in his face um, and announce that he is retiring and then he doesn't. So six months later, six months after this blows up on Twitter, okay. the latest Five Nights at Freddy's game, Five Nights at Freddy's security breach comes out and features Cawthorn as the head writer. He is still attached to the project. Is that something he might have been working on before this shit all came out? Ostensibly. That is possible, and I have not found anything to determine this. No. But I don't... I I think that kind of steps around my point. His name is still attached to this property, and presumably he is still receiving royalties, if nothing else, for this franchise ostensibly gaining more money and being able to live comfortably after doing this thing that myself and a massive chunk of his fan base do not agree with. Mm-hmm. And so this gets into my problem. You know, Cawthorn's fall from grace was widely publicized and in my opinion, justified barring any argument over if it is ethical or not to financially aid the likes of Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell, getting out of the argument of, well, shouldn't anybody be able to do whatever they want with their money, whether I personally agree with their politics or not? You know, his actions were widely reviled from the left and from the LGBT community. And it truly feels like since the new game has come out, 
those same people have largely forgotten their issue. Mm. You know, there's a, a new game. It's the best looking one is my understanding. It has revamped versions of all the characters and it's become a thing that is trendy on TikTok and Twitter to go ahead and cosplay the animatronics use the sound bites. It's something that is having a viral moment on TikTok at time of recording mm-hmm. from, you know, a bunch of people who I follow who are cosplayers and, and content creators and people who I, I feel like would have had issue with learning that Scott Cawthorn privately is helping fund Mitch McConnell and, and Donald Trump and all these people. And, even if this is the last game Cawthon works on, it's apparent to me now that his cultural impact is untouchable. Mm-hmm. People will always be willing to forgive what, again, I see as his indiscretions are because this game is so popular and so interesting. And even if he doesn't make money from the games, he will still reap financial benefits and continue to live his shitty conservative born and raised in texas you know i i included all these references to him working on christian based projects for a reason he's sure. going to continue and makes no bones about his incredibly pro right wing lifestyle okay can i trouble your waters i mean of course i i <laughs> I, I i think i know where, where you're gonna go where, well, uh, well hold on where do you think i'm gonna go I sit here and acknowledge that, by and large, donating money to right-wing political figures is not the same as any number of truly awful crimes that I could list. Sure. Okay, so I'm very aware that at the beginning of, uh, or at part, uh, at the beginning of this episode, I made a point about like how it's masturbatory to play whataboutism for Joni Mitchell and and Neil Young. That said, I'm gonna play a little bit of whataboutism, so if you'll indulge my masturbatory nature. Okay. Um, Meatloaf just died. Indeed. We did a whole segment on Bad Out of Hell. Indeed. I don't know about you, I did that segment fully knowing that Meatloaf endorsed Mitt Romney for president in 2012. Hmm. I don't know if you were aware of that. I was not. Yeah. Meatloaf, absolutely, like, granted, was he, like, sitting here going, like, was he calling Obama the N-word and, like, Ted Nugent was or, or any number of other, like, shit, like, like, he did, like, he's not Ted Nugent. He's not calling Obama a mongrel. He's not, like, being out with his chest supporting the worst aspects of the Republican Party. He's not sitting here, like, championing the Iraq War or anything like that. Sure. He's saying, I like Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney's my guy. He was a Republican. At the end of his life, he was... An anti-vaxxer. An anti-vaxxer. I didn't know about a climate change denier, but I knew he was an anti-vaxxer. And I don't see people talking about those takes as they're eulogizing the man. Sometimes some of the same people who I saw giving Eric Clapton shit for being an anti-vaxxer are pouring their hearts out with love for Meatloaf upon his death. And 
You know, I, I, I have always been of the opinion that you can love art and criticize an artist. What's more, you have to. Um, I can't remember if I talked about this on the show or not, or if this was just in a conversation you and I were having, but I have a friend who was like forged by the Harry Potter books, loves them. They were some of the most important books to her growing up. And the way that she talks about Jake he Rowling is like she doesn't exist. She will literally, and it's it's tongue in cheek, but she will say, and of course, you know, when the Harry Potter books uh, just appeared with no author, it was a beautiful moment in my life. Like she, and that's because she doesn't want to support J.K. Rowling. She's willing to be critical of J.K. Rowling. And I have straight up been like, no, that is bullshit. You have to be willing to accept that the artists you love do shitty stuff. Matt and Trey Parker are Republicans, have been, always. Nobody wants to talk about that, like, outside. Nobody who is a South Park fan, mm-hmm. I should say, wants to talk about that. People who have always hated South Park or have never found South Park funny are happy to be like, yeah, Matt and Trey are fucking Republicans and they have these shit libertarian takes. But fans don't want to talk about that. Scott Cawthon is essentially out here with his chest being like okay yeah i i donated to republicans cancel me okay i got caught donating to republicans you think dwayne johnson hasn't donated to republicans he's a card carrying republican Hmm. but i'm gonna watch black adam (laughs) i love guardians of the galaxy and parks and rec and chris pratt Hmm. is an evangelical Sure. And absolutely donates to Republicans. But he's not viral for it right now. I guess my thing here is not to not hate Scott Cawthon. I'm not going to try and talk you out of your hate. But I am curious about this notion where you are upset with fans of his art for that political side. But Meatloaf was an anti-vaxxer. And I know you're mourning me. Because you love meatloaf. You love meatloaf meatloaf more than I love meatloaf. I do. I, I absolutely do. And so in, in response, I um, I recently saw on TikTok, to bring it back up, a comedian bring up what I thought was a very eloquent take on talking about separating, in mourning specifically in this case, separating Meatloaf from Marvin Lee Day mm-hmm. and bringing up how Marvin Lee Day was an anti-vaxxer and a climate change denier. And Meatloaf, the guy on stage in the 70s, was somebody who crafted the sex rock magic that I so deeply love. And we had we had, had a private disagreement about this, and that's yes. when you brought up the J.K. Rowling thing. To yes. Me. Okay. Cool. Here, here's what I will say. I I mourned Meatloaf. I mourned David Bowie, mm-hmm. and then had a discussion with a friend who is like, "Yeah, I really can't put aside the fact that David Bowie like had sex with an underage woman and absolutely manipulated his power in that way." Um, and we've talked at length about how everybody has a line. Mm-hmm. I guess where this sticks in my cross so much is this is like right on my line. And what I mean by that is hearing that somebody has done something abhorrent and then making sure that you do not actively aid 
their life through finance, voting with your dollars. Sure. You know, I didn't know any of the shit about David Bowie until after he died. David Bowie's dead, and yeah, presumably the Bowie estate is getting some money when I listen to changes on Spotify. Presumably Meatloaf's son is going to get whatever royalties there are when I played Bat Out of Hell the morning after I found out Meatloaf died. But I don't listen to Pogo anymore. And I, on, on this show, have come out and said, yeah, Pogo's a fucking monster who laughed at footage of the Pulse shooting. Fuck that guy forever. I am not going to give him a single dollar or contribute to him making a dollar. I have actively avoided all Harry Potter merchandising and paraphernalia so that I, with my dollars at least, do not give J.K. Rowling a single red cent that I contribute. I am big on trying to, as best you can, stick with their morals, stick with one's morals and apply that to your media. You know, we talked about uh, the the guy who wrote Roni Kenshin being arrested for child pornography and how a lot of the anime community kind of gave him a pass and I'm never going to watch Roni Kenshin again. I'm never going to uh, endorse any work that that writer continues to make. Until he's dead. Well, once the person dies <laughs> and you can make an argument that they themselves, the person you have an objection with, are not benefiting because they're fucking dead. I do think it gets a little more nuanced at that point. Mm -hmm. I do think it becomes at least acceptable to go. Yeah. Meatloaf was kind of a piece of shit, but that out of hell two slaps. And I'm going <laughs> to listen to it now. Sure. I, I still listen to Michael Jackson and I believe the allegations against him. Right. And it's I, I, I guess my thing is, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go down hating Scott Cawthon. I am not going to support any Five Nights at Freddy's endeavors. And I guess it just bugs me to see all these people who I presume the politics of, and maybe that's part of the problem, is that I'm presuming the politics of these content creators. What I see and guess is a writing off because there is a chance to make a viral video and wear this costume that's popular right now and do that. So, and you know what? I've learned this through specifically R Kelly. Cause there's still a lot of people who fuck with R Kelly. Sure. And fuck with R Kelly music. Now it legitimately breaks my heart a little to not listen to ignition fucking love ignition. I fucking loved a lot of R. Kelly music. Yeah. And I avoid that. I avoid it. Now, here's my duality. I, if it comes on when I'm, you know, mythologically at the grocery store, because I don't go to the grocery store right now because pandemic, but if it comes on in the grocery store, I'm a little, like, I'm bopping a little. Sure. But I'm not pulling it up on Spotify. And I think that is the, that is like the thing we the people can do to hold accountability. Yes. And it's not about presuming people's politics. It's presuming their lines. Fair. Some people will draw that line on R. Kelly and some people will not. 
Some people will sit here and go, well, Spotify pays like a penny and a half for a what for like a million streams. I'm not helping R. Kelly that much. So it doesn't really matter if I bump Ignition. I'm just not going to buy any of his albums. Not that you were buying the albums to begin with. It's, it's, and, and here's the thing. I hear that argument and I'm not altogether too enraged by it. Because, you know, I still occasionally buy shit on Amazon because it's sometimes the only way I can get stuff. Because we all make our compromises. That's fair. And I think you're talking about these creators and they're, it's, I think for me, the thing that I would be upset about, and this is just me personally, would be people engaging with this and not thinking about it. Because, you know, you can, I can sit here and say, I'm going to go watch Black Adam. I'm going to watch Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm going to, this, this is a good example. I don't stream R. Kelly. But this week, when I was at work, um, on my lunch breaks, I play bass. I practice. And I'm trying to figure out learning songs by ear. I pulled up Kelly Clarkson's Since You've Been Gone, which was co-written by Dr. Luke. Mm. Dr. Luke of the um, destroying or attempting to destroy Kesha fame. Right. Also a really big songwriter. And I'm sitting here going like, okay, I like Kelly Clarkson. Kelly Clarkson has disavowed Dr. Luke. I like Max Martin. I have my criticisms of Max Martin for not for not throwing down Dr. Luke. Max Martin and Dr. Luke co-wrote that song. I listened to that song. I arguably just gave Dr. Luke some money. And I don't want to support Dr. Luke, but I do love that song. I do want to support Kelly Clarkson. I it's hard. You make these compromises. And at the end of the day, I made that decision. But I have complicated feelings about it. I'm thinking about it. I think the thing that pisses me off is when people engage with that media and don't think about it. They do just kind of write off and forget Scott Cawthon and right. just don't think about it any farther than that. Now, that's me. And that's where my line of getting pissed off is. Your line might be different. But the thing that I do appreciate about this conversation is that it is a conversation. And it is sitting here going, all right, here's... Here's Andy's line. Let's talk about lines. Let's talk about what's acceptable. Let's talk about what's reasonable. Because the only way to not engage with any of this stuff is to go fucking die in the woods. <laughs> well, yeah, fair enough, man. I, I think I knew this was going to be something to have a discussion about. And so I, I like that tape. That makes me feel uh, a bit better about having this admittedly muddy discussion mm. where I will firmly stand is Scott Cawthon can go get fucked. <laughs> I do hold donating thousands and thousands of dollars to high uh, level Republican representatives at the same ethical standard as laughing at the poll shooting. Okay. That is where my line is. I hear it. You want to move on to the... <laughs> I think we better <laughs> before I just bottle in this any longer. <laughs> So you, you gave the uh, summary. I will go ahead and read the question. Okay. On every episode of Love-Hate Relationship, we take yours and the Internet's relationship questions and provide our unqualified advice. 
This one, I believe, is coming to us from relationships.txt. My older sister hacked my debit card and left me with 60 cents. Back in July, my sister hacked my debit card and charged over $450 while I was on a cruise with my parents and boyfriend. I don't know how she got it. I left it in a safe. So fast forward to a month. My mother came into my room two weeks ago at two in the morning. She was infuriated and asked why I only had 60 cents left in my checking account when a month ago I had $500. I was completely baffled and knew something was off since I barely spent any money. I checked my bank statements and noticed there were charges for Amazon and for weed. So I canceled my debit card and launched an investigation with my bank. My sister is the only person in my family who smokes and has an Amazon addiction. I got super suspicious, so I got my grandmother to ask her about it. My sister cried and owned up to saying the reason she blew all of my money was because she was depressed. Most of the charges she made was the day I left for my trip, up until August 10th. I had to call my bank and tell them to cancel the investigation. The bank went ahead to press charges on my sister, and I begged them not to. My sister has stolen over $60,000 from my grandparents in the past. My grandmother called me crying, saying, you better not press charges on your sister or it will ruin our family dynamic. My grandma basically threatened that if I ever filed charges on my sister, that she would cut me off. I'm her granddaughter. My grandma gave me the $450 back and told me to get over it. I haven't talked to my sister in two weeks, and I'm so upset about how she could steal from me like that. We need a name for this person or for these couple of people. Sure. We've got a... I feel like there has to be a lot of examples of, like, the good sister, bad sister dynamic. I mean, certainly there are, um, but... What I really keen into here is the affluence of this family. And that has me thinking this is some Lucille Bluth shit. <laughs> Certainly the, the mother is Lucille. I'm trying to remember what Portia de Rossi's name in that show was. Uh, that was... Oh, God. Why Why am I blanking Lindsay. on her? Yeah, Lindsay I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on an Arrested Development reference. That's terrible. I, I never blank on those. <sighs> Um, problem there is it's only one sister, though That's I guess true. I guess this could be like a Lindsay and Job thing. I feel like that'd be a very Job move. That's this is what that's what this strikes me as. Okay, so we have Lindsay Bluth and Job Bluth. Yeah, and I mean, you know, gender bending is nothing new for these questions, but I will say I don't respect the sister enough to worry about that. Spoiler, I don't respect anybody in this family. Uh, yeah, I'm not gonna front. This is, this is a, this is an awful dynamic. Oh, God. Okay, so, we have Lindsay Bluth. Well, maybe I don't feel like being criticized around the clock. I don't criticize you. And if you're worried about criticism, sometimes a diet is the best defense. You read, so shall I take first stab at this? Yeah, I say go ahead. Okay. So... I have some I have a presumption to make here for Lindsay, which is that her mother came into her room at two in the morning to yell at her about this bank account situation, which tells me that Lindsay, who is 21, uh, we didn't mention the names, 21 year old Lindsay and 24 year old Job, Lindsay lives with her mom. Um, so that means that this family dynamic from the grandmother, and the grandmother cutting off, like, this is, there's a family dependence here. Yeah. 
Lindsay does not mention if she works in any capacity. I'm, you know, we, and she, but she also doesn't say if she goes to school or anything like that. But my presumption here is that Lindsay relies at least to some degree on her family, whether that's relies on them for housing, relies on them for money in general, just relies on them. Right. Joe clearly relies on the family, um, judging from this. So the question is essentially about how to deal with, like, she doesn't even really ask the question. She just kind of says, how do I deal with this shit in the family? Right. And I, to me, there's two approaches here. You could either take the litigious route and have have charges pressed against your sister and deal with the fallout of that. Or you can roll and play, play along, and hopefully make plans. I'm more inclined towards the latter. Because I feel like if you press charges on this, your grandmother clearly is enabling Job. I know this is not actually your the grandmother in Arrested Development, but I'm just going to say it's Lucille. Yeah. Because um, whatever. Lucille is enabling Job, which is ironic because Lucille hated Job. Didn't care for him. Uh, but... I think if the bank presses charges, Lucille is just going to make sure with whatever money she can she can use that Job will get off. Because I, it sounds like Lucille has this like we have a family dynamic that has to that has to have supremacy. She's going to protect her grandchild when her grandchild is being attacked. So essentially, you could be blowing up your spot to no real consequence. So because of that, my instinct is to take the $450 from Lucille and start making your plans to extricate yourself from this situation. You need to find the ways to not need to depend on your family financially. And that might be a long-term thing. If you're in college right now, hell, like I know I, I I have a very dear person in my life who had college and graduate school paid for by her grandparents and has spoken to me at length about the fallout that comes with that because there is that money does not come with no strings attached it comes with a lot of emotional manipulation right and she has spent her 20s and into her 30s essentially building up more and more financial independence but she had to use that seed money to do so make those plans you have a boyfriend i don't know what the status is with the boyfriend but you know, if you two could be um, a reliable, like, source of mutual care, that's one thing. Getting on your own feet financially, make those plans. Roll along with things for the short term, but start trying to extricate yourself from this and protect yourself from your sister however you can. Get the bank accounts in your own name. Be more mindful with passwords. Get identity protection. Like, the first thing you should buy with this is going to be identity protection. Learn about password etiquette. Learn the ways to secure yourself now. Take care of yourself until you are independent and then extricate yourself from the situation because only via independence will you have any chance of surviving as an individual in this fucked family dynamic. Right. I think I think that's wonderful advice and really gets to the core to it. Uh, I... God, the, the just the immediate take from this is this is a... 
incredibly toxic family for a couple of different ways, you know. It so so Lindsay does state that presumably her sister broke into a locked safe to or, to get this. Or hacked her systems. Or, or hacked the system. The sister certainly seems like a incredibly selfish and uncaring person. Somebody who at the slightest availability just steals somebody's money because and, and then provides you know the most shallow excuse they can think of afterwards um the grandmother is enabling all of this and you know we don't get into actual financial specifics but presumably the grandparents have at least $60,450 to their name and are either willing to give every last cent they have to their children, which isn't necessarily helpful or healthy, or are so rich that money doesn't matter. In which case, I start to wonder, is Job committing all this theft and, and identity theft because of other issues? You know, it... It, what, what strikes me so crazy is it seems like Lucille doesn't care about anything beyond just keeping the family together and is literally buying the family's, like, acceptance at this social situation to stay together. We don't get a clear take on what's going on with the mom other than she is checking her daughter, her, her adult daughter's bank records at... 1.30 in the morning. Uh, Job, in this case, is somebody who needs some sort of wake-up call or, or financial help. I wouldn't go so far as to recommend cutting them off because that seems like just a really quick way to really tragic circumstances. But also, Lindsay, I think, I get a real sense that Lindsay is not so mad that they were left with 60 cents. I don't think the money matters as much as the blatant theft, yeah. which is fair, but still it's, you got to point out Lindsay is coming from a place of some sort of privilege here. Yeah. So I, I mean, you know, all of that to say, I absolutely agree with you. I, I didn't mention this cause it's a footnote, but apparently Job had Amazon packages delivered in their neighbor's name and the neighbor is a minor, so is committing identity theft and is like opening this up to something beyond a family issue, to something that could get, you know, an innocent bystander in trouble. Job sounds like really bad news, and, and I can't think of an effective, effective method that is going to get Job out of their habits. I think if you really want to send a message, Lindsay needs to convince their grandmother needs to convince Lucille you're creating this dynamic where people only care about the money. You're creating this dynamic where people are going to fight over the inheritance after you die and then forget about you. Yeah. This is not how you create a familial structural bond. You can't buy it. I, so again, my, my attitude on this honestly is you cannot fix your family. I liked Encanto. I did. But let's all be honest. The matriarchs and patriarchs of our families, the idea that they will apologize for any goddamn fucking thing that they do, 
is laughable for most cases. Like, that is, if you have that, you are a miracle child. So, Lindsay, you're not going to be a miracle child. The best thing that you can do is, I understand not wanting to cut your family out of your life. I really, really do. It's, you you got to get out from under this thumb of them. And that will probably take years. Yeah. Job will probably never get out from under that thumb. Job is going to be enabled by her family for the rest of time. When your grandmother is dead, your parents might might be the ones looking after Job. Or maybe Job gets enough of a chunk of your grandparents' money that she is fine until she's not. It's it's and Job will not see complic will not see consequences for the crimes that Job has committed. Yeah. And that's out of your control. That was out of your control before you were born, most likely. So the only thing you can do is to live your life on your own terms. That means get out from under them. That means you need to not worry about them beyond that. Like, take care of yourself and your things and make a plan to extricate yourself from this. When your family has no power over you, they might leave you behind. But that will not be your responsibility. There is nothing so powerful as being able to look at a, a, a parental figure or a grandparental figure in this case in the eye and say, I do not care about what you have to say or give me. Yeah. And if you can say that from a place of being on your own two feet, like it's not you it's not you giving a middle finger because you're angry it's you giving a middle finger because you don't need them anymore that is your safeguard here that is how you deal with this you can treat this as a breaking point you can treat this as a wake up call to go get your life together in a way such that their lives not being together or being held together by this crux of toxicity and money no longer affects you work on that yeah, I think really as safely as possible, extricating yourself. It doesn't have to be a dramatic thing if, you know, you take it one small step at a time and, and wind up getting out of this incredibly unhealthy family dynamic. I think that's the key for Lindsay here. Um, so if you have a relationship question, if you have a familial dispute, if you have something that you want our perfectly unqualified advice for, we are always open to talking to that or if you know somebody who has some sort of, you know, relationship problem that they're working through, you can send all of those questions in to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com or to our Twitter, and we promise we'll read them. That's right. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Ma. You can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. You can follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. You know, interact with our tweets. Send us questions there. Send us, hell, send us stuff you want to talk. Uh, you want us to talk about. We will happily take topic suggestions. Absolutely. I had to rack my brains for this one. And then, like, Stephanie dropped it on me. I was like, oh, that's fucking perfect. So, <laughs> you know, it's just please hit us, hit us up there. That's right. Uh, you can also find my other podcast, Cult Fiction, that I do with 
that very same incomparable Stephanie Johnson, where we watch shitty cult movies, many of which you can probably find at your local library. Hey. That is Cult Fiction, and you can find this, that podcast everywhere you can find this one. You can also find me, Andy Boel, at JovoCop2113. And if you're interested in following my Warhammer painting modeling journey, I have nerd. a new Twitter account called Andy Paints Minis. Oh... I love you. You know, there is actually another Twitter Twitter account that's called, like, Andy's Minis or something like I that. Know, I, I know. almost followed it. It hasn't tweeted in, like, seven years. I should buy the domain. No, don't spend that money. Um, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok, which I'm now posting on a little bit more, uh, as well as chess.com and lichess at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please tell your friends.